Thanks for joining us today as you listen to a portion of a message recorded at Vine Life Church in Boulder, Colorado. If you'd like to connect with us further, you can visit us online at www.vinelife.com. And uh, so it was fun hearing stories about that playing out uh, over the last couple of weeks of people just getting in interesting scenarios and saying, God, let me see what you see. And so I want to continue uh, the series today, and we're going to talk about something I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that few of you have uh, heard preached about ever. Um, but I want to talk about the sense today that is pretty much the opposite of sight. If sight is an experience and a sense that you can interact with something from far away, this would be on the other end of the scale. We zoom way in. And this is the sense that has the closest proximity. So I want to ask you to do something with me here today. Would you close your eyes around the room? We're going to do an exercise. This could be a dangerous exercise, seeing as how it's about noon right now. But I'm going to ask you to think in your seat. I want you to picture the best meal you have ever had. I told you this would be dangerous. I want you to just picture this. The best meal you've ever had. Now, some of you, that could be a fine dining experience. But come on, that could be just, you know, your mother's, your grandmother's 75-year-old lasagna recipe, Okay. The best meal, or, or, you know, or just, just even one food group that's like, man, that was the best I've ever had. I just want you to think about that for a second. Why was it the best? What was so perfect about it? What was it like? Was it the way the cheese melted on the pasta? Was it the way the vegetables were seasoned? Was it just the right crispiness or the right texture or the, just the right consistency? What was it about it that just stuck out to you? You're just like, whoa, that is, the, that is probably the best thing I have ever had. When you think about that, you see, for me, I am a simple human being. And here's what I mean by that. Though I appreciate fine dining experiences, I am a man who is allured towards just an incredible hamburger. You can open your eyes. And what you see on the screen in front of you, it may not look appetizing from your vantage point. But this, my friends, the family of God, is called a cherry cricket burger. Okay? If you get on I-25, head about 45 minutes south, Denver, you get to the Cherry Creek Mall. There, you can Google it. You will find Duffy's Cherry Cricket, God's gift to humankind. All right? This particular hamburger, let me, just, let me just exegete this burger for you. It's a fancy word that preachers use, but I'm going to talk about this burger almost as if it's the word of God, okay? The burger, let me just, let me just talk about this burger for a second. We're talking about a third pound, listen to me, a third pound of grade A premium Angus beef. Can somebody just say amen in the room right now? I'm sorry, I just lost a third of you, okay? <laughs> All the vegetarians. <laughs> the rest of the message will apply to you. This will not, okay? Because it's about to get worse for you. On top of this slab of premium meat, heaven's gift, is melted smoked cheddar, okay? Combined with two strips of bacon, saw somebody yesterday, they had a shirt that said, bacon is the answer. I don't know what the question was. 
Somebody, I just ministered to you right there, wherever you're sitting. What you see, what are the other thing you see in this burger is slices of green chili strips, which is a wonderful idea. And if that weren't good enough, if it wasn't magical enough as it was, on top of it you see a fried egg. If you have never had a fried egg on a hamburger... We're going to have a ministry time after the service here today. You can get prayer, okay? It changes your life forever. I'm not even joking you. Like, I'm, I'm having a worship experience with God as I'm eating this burger. All nestled into a beautifully baked sesame bun, okay? Now, we could pray and end the service right there, but I'm going to keep talking here. The cherry cricket burger. I, I will never forget this burger because it, you know, you have, when you have the best food, it kind of ruins all other foods, right? It just kind of ruins everything. Everything else is compared to that. So any other burger I have is really ends up being compared to this particular burger. Now, I'm convinced, this is just another side note. This has nothing to do with where, where I'm going. I'm convinced that as much as Jesus loves you and I, Jesus would have come, he would have left his throne and come to the earth just for this burger right here, okay? That's how good it is, all right? Okay, do I need to drill this in anymore? Do we got it? It's a good burger. Now, what I love about the senses, when we talk about experiencing God with our senses, you know, what's really interesting about the sense of taste is it involves all of the other senses, but it gets us to the closest proximity to its subject, okay? So it involves the ability to see and to hear the sizzle in the kitchen, and it involves the ability to smell and to touch. But where seeing and hearing you can do from a distance, smelling and and fragrance and scent requires you to be a little closer. Touch will put you in arm's length, but taste is the only sense that your experience with the subject not only involves touch, but it actually involves the infilling of that particular substance and the ingestion of it, or the consumption of it, and the filling up of it. And here's another thing that makes taste really interesting. I'm going to ask you another question. You guys are thinking of the best meal you've ever had. When you partook of that particular meal, do you remember who you were with? Do you remember who you're with? My guess is about 95% of this room, if you can think of the best meal or the best thing you've ever had, probably what also comes to mind is the occasion and the people you got to share the experience with. Because the thing about taste, again, not only is it the closest proximity, but taste is the sense that is most likely to bring people and friends and family around a table to share something together. And so it's no surprise when we look at the scripture that when we look at a spiritual sense of taste, it always involves either intimacy with God or intimacy with people, okay? And I want to look at this real quick before you think you have no idea where I'm going. You're like, I I don't even know how you're going to preach on this right now. But David, he takes a tackle of this a a couple times, Psalm 34, 8. He writes about this in his songs to God. It, it, It just comes out in his songs to God. And we hear this quoted very often. In Psalm 34, 8, David writes to the Lord, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Then again in Psalm 119, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. They're your precepts, I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. And what we know about David, if there was ever a man that wasn't satisfied 
at being at a distance, it was David. David was a man who just pressed in as far as he could until he got a firsthand take, yeah? He said, Jesus, Lord, I'm pressing into you. I'm pressing into the fullness of who you are and to the point to where David in song could describe his relationship with God as being so close. It was so, I'm so close to the goodness of God. It's almost like I can just, I can just taste it. It's all, his goodness has come so close to me, not just an arm's length, but I can, it's almost like it's filling me up and I can taste it as it's coming in. And David says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And then he continues, your, your words are sweeter than anything I've ever had. You ever have that feeling with, when you're with the Lord? Has it been that good where you hear him speak and he said, man, I don't know. I don't know how else to describe this, but, but God, your words to me, your words to my soul are sweeter than the sweetest of honey. And he continues that thought. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every other false way. And that's what the best taste does to us, right? It sets the bar. It ruins us for anything less than that particular experience. And this is the thing that we celebrate about God is that God didn't wait for us to come to him. He came close to us. And that's we know, what we know about food and what we know about taste is that it doesn't really translate from a distance. You cannot taste from a distance, can you? That's what makes the Food Network so frustrating, isn't it? Can we just rant on that for a second? The cooking channel, I mean, any cooking show, Master Chef, I watch, I, watch, I mean, we, we try to watch a lot of those. We love them. We, I love the cooking shows, but it always ends in me being disappointed, right? Because it doesn't work through a screen, and we know that, but we keep watching anyways. It's like an addiction, right? It's like you watch the whole half an hour or an hour, and the, the cook or the chef, you know, they're gathering all their ingredients. They're trying to prepare for this challenge, right? And they're going through, and they're, you know, they're doing all the cuts and the sizzling of the pan, and steam's rising in the kitchen, and, and they're telling stories about their mother or their father, you know, cooking this when they were kids. And, you know, you're like, oh, my gosh, I want to try this. And, and every show ends the exact same way, right? It always ends the same way, just with disappointment. Here's why. Because the cook or the chef, at the end of the show, prepares this amazing dish, and you've been watching them labor in this process from the beginning, and you have a sense of how good it will taste, but you don't get to taste it. You get to watch them taste it. And so they take out a fork, and they kind of parcel out a small little portion of this particular dish, and you watch from your seat like a fool, right? just drooling at your TV while they bring it to their mouth and it's the same every time. Have they ever been disappointed with their dish? Has that ever happened on the food? They never tried it. I'm like, oh, wow, that wasn't as good as I thought it was going to be. It's always the same. They eat it and they're like, whoa, this is, this is the best I've ever had, right? This is so good. And, and you're just sitting there like, I, I will never know right? Until they can figure out like a 3D printer that can print the food from the show you're watching. Somebody get on that, by the way. Until they can figure that out, somebody replicate that dish in front of me. Until then, I'm upset, right? This ain't working. And we know inherently when it comes to taste, taste does not work from a distance. You cannot taste good food from a distance in the same way when we look at the scripture, the goodness of God was never intended to just be explained. It was always meant to be experienced firsthand. It's the same. The goodness of God. Listen to me. There are some things about God that have to go further than our minds can comprehend. And just like the best chef 
The best recipe in a magazine, they try to do their best to allure your appetite. It is never compared to tasting it firsthand. And the same is true with the goodness of God. The goodness of God was never meant for us to be experienced from a distance. It was always an invitation for us to taste and see that the Lord is good. And we know that. That's, that's what we celebrate, that God has been faithful to always come closer than we thought he was going to come. We thought he was just going to let us see him. We thought we just, he was just going to let us hear him. We thought maybe we could smell his fragrance. We thought maybe if we're lucky we can touch him. And he said, no, I'm going to go closer than your taste. And I'm going to come for the inside. We not only experience him on the outside, we get to be filled with him on the inside. And so we thank God that he doesn't just invite us into the idea of him. He invites us to an intimate relationship with him. And, and it's no different when it comes to our living in our life and, and what we speak of the Lord when we leave this room. See, the world doesn't need a good explanation of God. The world needs a taste of his goodness. The world needs a taste I don't need a good explanation. I need a taste. And so the question we ask ourselves as we're becoming people, as we're continuing to become people that develop a palate for the goodness of God and the wonders of his name, a really good question for us to go to then is, are we a people of good taste? Are you a person of good taste? Does your life and your living leave a good taste in the mouths of the people you spend your time with. Here's how Peter tackles this. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, Peter says, so, says, so put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And if you kind of reverse engineer that sentence. If you kind of take that sentence structure and kind of work it backwards, you can read it like this. If, hey, listen, if you've tasted the Lord is good, then long for the pure spiritual milk instead of settling for malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Do you see what's happening here? Peter is actually creating a contrast between a taste of the Lord's goodness and this whole list of sinful behavior. He said, listen, once you've tasted of the goodness, don't settle for this other stuff. Do you guys kind of see how that's working there? You see, God's goodness, if, if we were to kind of take this a little further, God's goodness would equal flavor and nutrition and strength and wholeness and health and purity and maturity. Whereas these, this other list he describes, this sinful behavior is equals flavorless, empty calories, junk food, quick gratification, sickness, weakness, childish desire. And what I believe Peter is getting at here, I think he's trying to paint a picture in, here of what we're trading out. And see, the, the message here is not stop sinning because God doesn't like that. No, that's true. Okay, let's just say that's true. But what's actually happening here is a greater invitation. I think what Peter is actually saying here is, listen, if you've tasted the goodness of God, 
Like if you've, ta- you've, if you've tasted how good God is, why would you settle for these junky foods over here, this malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander? Why would you trade out the best of the best for something subpar? You've already tasted it. Why not stick with the bar that high? Like, why would you go downtown to Frasca in Boulder, right, and have this incredible meal? Why would you partake of that and then the next day just settle for some cheap Burger King or something or whatever? He said, why would, why would you, I can't imagine why you do that if you've tasted the pleasure and the beauty and the joy of knowing just how good he is, then why don't you nourish yourself in that? Why don't you spend your time there? Why don't you keep tasting? Why don't you keep drinking from that well? Keep nursing there as pure spiritual milk because this other stuff won't satisfy. They're empty calories. They'll, they'll gratify you quickly and in the moment. It's something you can latch onto. Yeah, sometimes it seems natural to be, to be malicious or to be envious or to be slanderous, but why are you doing that? Because you've tasted something so much better. Don't settle for, for junk food. Don't do that. If you want to be a person of good taste, if anybody has tasted the goodness of God, that alone should transform us to be a person of good taste, a person that when we step foot in a place, the world interacts with us and says, there's something about the way you live that is just flavorful. Paul, and I think it was to the Colossians, he said, let your, let your word be seasoned with salt. Like, let your speech and your conduct be seasoned. Like, let it have flavor. Let, let it speak for itself so you don't have to waste your time explaining this and explaining that. Your living will do the job for you so the world can taste and see that he is good. The world tastes through the way we live because we get to live from what we've tasted. And that's the goodness of God. Is anybody alive here in this place today? And so if we're to look at that, then what is a life of good taste? If we're going to take the opposites of everything that Peter just mentioned, a life of good taste, you know, it's, it's a new creation life, a life in the spirit, you know, it, it should be an overflow in the fruit of the spirit. Not that we have to get ourselves to do things, but we have kind of, we have kind of indicators along the, low, along the road that we're on the right track. And so a life of good taste is a life of relentless kindness, truth, integrity, contentedness, generosity, encouragement. That's the life he's called us to be. You step foot in somewhere. I'm going to be relentlessly kind in this place. Hasn't the Lord done that with you? You were never allured into relationship with God because of begrudging obedience. If you were, then there's something better. God doesn't allure us with the threat of what he's going to do if we disobey. God allures us with his kindness. The scripture said it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. It is the most flavorful, nutritious, tasty, sweet thing you will ever experience is the kindness of the Father. There is no replacement for that. In a like manner, we get invited to be relentlessly kind. I think kindness is one of the most powerful weapons on this earth. Yeah? Yeah? And what we're asking is, God, God, we want to live a life that is as flavorful as everything that you've invited us into. I want my life to be a mere reflection of what you've done. That's what he asked for. That's what Jesus said, Matthew 5.13. He said, he said, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? He's like, hey, you're the, one, you're the salt. Like I, you know, and he knew that he was setting the stage. He said, I am sending you 
You know, I'm sending you out in the power of the Holy Spirit. You're going to be the salt. You're going to be the light. You are the agents of blessing. You are the ones to bring the taste, to bring the good taste to this earth. The world needs some, something other than empty calories. They need another option, need a taste of the goodness of God. And that's what I love about Jesus. It's just Jesus always ended up gravitating back towards the dinner table. You guys know this? He just, it just seems like you read through the Gospels, Jesus has an obsession with eating with people. Is that okay to say? I mean, I, I mean it, sometimes we think about, you know, we're going to leave here and go get lunch, and it's kind of a functional, I'm just, just eating because I need to eat. That's not how the scripture talks about sharing a meal. Sharing a meal was never supposed to be this just functional, kind of non-spiritual thing. I'm just kind of doing what I have to do so I can get on to the thing. The, the meal, the shared meal, has everything to do with, again, the, the, not only, again, the, the sense of taste and the entering into what we're experiencing, but the sharing of relationship with each other. Everything about taste has to do with intimacy with God and intimacy with people. And so Jesus... This is what so much of his ministry just kind of came back to. People would accuse him for having dinner with the wrong people. He'd always be taking breaks and having, having meals or snacks with his disciples. And, and then he'd say, I'm going to prepare a place for you because I'm setting up a dinner and I'm having you over to my place. I'm going to host and there's going to be this massive dinner. Jesus is just really all about dinner and eating. Is that good news to anybody here in this room? Because you're just getting hungry now, right? I mean, if you're not already hungry, like, you're just ready to go do this, right? Like, I will, I will respond to this message, Pastor Luke. But it was the only metaphor that seemed to make sense for what he was trying to communicate. Not only, not everybody understood him, though. The thing is, when Jesus would talk to his disciples and talk to the crowds. He would talk to them about drawing so near to them. It was just uncomfortable for them. Have you ever wondered why Jesus asked us to remember him by sharing a meal together? Isn't that an interesting question? Because you think, man, of all the ways we could remember Jesus here and now, it seems like he could have asked for different things. Like, hey, Remember me by singing this song together, right? Remember my, by praying this particular prayer. You look, look at the way we live life. You know, it'd be like, remember me by preaching good sermons. Remember me by doing this. He said, remember me by taking the bread and the cup together as my body and my blood. That's how I want you to remember me, is sharing a meal together to, rec- to, to signify your reconciliation with me, therefore your reconciliation with each other. And, but he wasn't always understood when he would say these things. And he didn't bother to explain himself. On so He just wasn't worried about being misunderstood at some points in time. I don't know if you noticed that. But he's speaking to the crowd in John 6. And he just says it very blatantly. I want you to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they are just confused. And here's, I'll just read the passage. John six fifty one. He said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then he just kind of stopped. Then it says, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his own flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, you know, so they asked this question, and it's like Jesus goes back into, he's, all right, let me explain this. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And so the Jews are like, 
okay, you just explained yourself. That wasn't helpful at all. You just said more of the same thing, and I'm still not sure what's going on. If I, if I, if I heard you correctly, you want me to eat your skin and drink your blood. Is that what you said, Jesus? Then he just doesn't, he just leaves it very, just kind of ambiguous and vague. Like, what, what is going on here? And he just continues. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also lives because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And then, as you can imagine, there wasn't just this round of applause, right? There wasn't people rushing the stage to, give, to, to, to say, I want to follow you, Jesus. They just left at that point in time. And even his disciples were like, what do you want us to do with that, Jesus? Like, what do you want us to do? How are we supposed to be like your PR agents around the world, right? Like, how am I supposed to explain this? And the thing is, we have to understand about this is, again, when Jesus is trying to describe the relationship he's invited us into, when he's describing the reason he came, that the nature of, of why he left his throne from heaven to earth, he's describing the nature of the closeness of proximity. If I had to pick something to describe how close I want you and I to be together, it's not going to be this distant thing. It's not going to be a across the room thing. It's not even going to be a touch thing. My relationship with you, what he desires for us is that he comes so close as if we partake him. We partake his body and his blood. We partake of the insight to be filled with the life of Christ, to be filled with the bread that has complete nourishment, that has complete sustenance, that will never leave us empty, that will be nutritious for the rest of time. He says, I am the living bread. I have no other other words to describe this to you, but you have to taste this. You have to taste me. You have to partake and be infilled and ingest the fullness of who I am. And, and as he was maneuvering through this, as he was doing his best to, to explain this, he ran the risk of talking and using a metaphor that's so intensely intimate, it's almost gross. But he was willing to be misunderstood because he said, it's got to be that close. I'm inviting you to partake of me that close. And we know what that would mean. That as he would go to the cross and his body would be broken and his blood would spill, ultimately that would be the, that would reconcile the world and set this whole new thing in motion and reverse everything that went wrong. It was the work of the cross And we know he did that for us so that when we partake, when he said, remember me with the meal, with the Lord's Supper, remember me by doing this because I want you to taste what I've done for you. I want you to taste the closeness of my goodness. I don't want you to just talk about it. Bob Goff said it like this. He says, you know, we study Jesus a lot. He said, but you know, we study a person, but we don't know them. There's another word for that. It's called stalking. He said, Jesus doesn't want any more stalkers. He doesn't need people studying him without knowing him. We're invited to move beyond that. We're invited to have an experiential taste of the goodness of God. And as we do every time, we bring to mind his faithfulness 
his victory, the success of the cross. His enduring love, his patience, his persistence, his mercy, his grace. We start to think through every time. He's just lavish his goodness on us so close though it's almost like it's palpable that we could taste it. And so today I want to do that together. In Jesus' invitation and revelation, he said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus has every intention to get you around the table with him and around the table with each other to talk about his goodness, to be people of good taste, to be the salt of the earth. So let's do that together. I just want to invite you across the room. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have communion tables on all four sides of the room. I believe in that back corner, we have some gluten-free options. I'm just going to leave it at that. But I just want to invite you at this time to stand, to go to a table, bring the elements back to your chair, and then we're going to pray together.
Um, Jesus says, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Uh, The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. Then back in uh, 1 John 5, it says that for everyone, uh, verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So I just want to pray in this place and ask the Lord, I thank you for every born-again person, Lord God, in this house. And if there's any concern or thought, whether you're born again, I just invite you um, to look at it. Do I believe that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, was uh, lived here, was crucified, died, uh, was resurrected, uh, that he came, that he ascended? Do I believe that? If the answer is yes, then God bless you, you're born again. It's not much more beyond that. All of a sudden, we're seeing from above. Our eyes have now switched from viewing life from here to viewing life from heaven where Jesus is. We're born from above. So Lord, we thank you for the food that you have given us. The food that you have given us, your very flesh and your very blood. That which brings us into eternity, that which heals us up, washes us, cleanses us of all separation and sin from you. We are a forgiven people. It's done. It's done. So we thank you, Lord, that it's done. And we today we eat with you at your table, Lord. We eat with you. Uh, We eat your bread. We eat the bread of life. We eat the bread that gives us life. And so we just take it and we eat it. drink your blood. We thank you, Lord, that your blood has been sprinkled on us. We thank you that we take it in and you can it consumes. We consume it. We thank you, Lord, that you just cleanse us and wash us and make us pure. We are pure in your sight. We are righteous in you, Christ. We thank you for your, for your blood. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that communion is an eternal thing. (laughs) We're just going to be doing this forever. Isn't that amazing? Thank you, Lord. (laughs) Amen. Thanks, Ed. Yeah. So, God, we pray that even today there would just be a lingering taste of your goodness. to just always be on the tip of our tongue, God. We thank you, God, that you've come just that close to us. I just pray for each person in this room who came today that needed a sense of your nearness and your goodness. I pray that this morning they would have that experience with you and as as they leave this place, God, that you would follow them home and you follow them to work 
follow them all the days of their life. God, I thank you that your goodness tracks us down. Our hearts are grateful for you to call ourselves yours, Jesus. We love you in this place. And it's in your name we pray together. Amen. Amen.